We started a series uh, last week called Redeeming Our Rule, and I was talking to a friend uh, this last week about some of the themes that we've been dialoguing about, uh, and uh, ended the conversation, was like, man, I would love for you to come up and share for a few minutes about um, some of your journeys as, if, as you've nav- navigated through life as a working man, uh, and then now moving into retirement, and how are you kind of processing some of these things, and also how would you encourage our community? So I want to invite Mike Murata to come up for a couple minutes, and he's going to share for a little bit. Yeah. Hey, guy. Good to see you. Good to see you. Welcome. Hey, thanks for the encouragement, y'all, because I'm really nervous about this. Um, okay, so I am going to read this at the encouragement of my wife, who suggested or, or confirmed that I ramble a little bit when I don't do that. So anyway, so Ernie asked me to share this morning some things that were on my heart that align really well with the sermon, uh, sermon series. So in my testimonial today to God's faithfulness, I want to provide two specific encouragements to two groups of y'all out there. Encouragement number one is for y'all who are early in mid-career, and let's call it the prime of your working years, and that's that you don't have to be a victim of success, and many of us are. I worked for 30 years in human resource consulting. At 25 years old and single, I started my first consulting job in Miami with what I'd call perfect balance. So I worked hard during the week, The nights were mine, the weekends were mine, but my boss, who was very pleased with my work, kind of could see potential, and so he started encouraging me, Mike, you got to work more. You're going to need to work weekends to be really successful, to which I pushed back, said, no, that's okay. I won't be as successful as maybe as fast as you think I could be. I'm good with that. I'm going to keep my balance. I was clear that I'm not going to do that, and, um, but as time went on, I was, um, the years passed and responsibility grew both at work and at home. I got married. I moved to Atlanta for a bigger job. I had a child. My strong desire to not disappoint led to saying yes to a little more every year. And my hours creeped up until I was working upwards of 60 hours per week, and it became the norm. Lifestyle creeped up slowly to match my success, to the bills to pay, and that kind of thing. So I kind of felt like a victim of my success. Couldn't change. Had to keep it up um, and and busy was a badge of honor for me. I wore it proudly but I felt I could do little to change it because people were counting on me at work and at home. My faith grew during those years, but I really look back now and I can see that there was more kingdom work that I could have done. Mm -hmm. And I know this because in 2011, my wife of 22 years very unexpectedly left me for another man. I felt betrayal and anger that I never felt before. I was overwhelmed with how it was all going to work out. I wanted evenly split custody of my 13-year-old son who was struggling emotionally in so many ways. My job was demanding. There was a substantial added financial stress. It was the first time in my life that I felt I couldn't figure my way out of it. I couldn't solve a problem on my own. One night when I felt most broken, I was praying, crying on the floor, pleading to God to show up for the first time in my life because I couldn't figure it out. It was then that I heard this inaudible but clear voice. And I heard, Mike, do you trust me? To which I kind of just snapped. I was like, of course I trust you. What do you think I'm doing here? Like, I've got nobody else to turn to. Mm. What do you think I'm trying to get your attention for? And then I heard, then trust me. And this peace came over me that I can't explain, but it became really clear to me in that moment that all, what I needed to do, my responsibility, was to figure out the next right decision. And it put the future in God's hands and, and trusted him to piece together each one of those decisions in some, in some way even though I couldn't see how it was going to work. So he started dropping people in my life, community group, um, church, work, um, family, friends, like all of a sudden counselors, there were just people showing up that really saved my life. At work, 
I knew I had to cut back. So I went to uh, my boss and said, I'm going to have to cut back. I've got all these other responsibilities. They were supportive. I needed a couple of months, figured it out, said 41 and a half hours is what I can do. I can cut back to full time is basically what I said. Mm. They were gracious. <laughs> I was prepared for a pay cut. They're like, no, we're gonna, you can continue. And so it was in that moment that I realized, now I look back on that and I realized, man, I should have done that. Shouldn't have waited till the tragedy mm. to prompt me to actually ask that question. And so I realized I wasn't as much of a victim of my success as I thought. Mm. So my encouragement to you is don't believe the lie culture feeds you that you are a victim of your success and you're trapped. Um, you are not. God has so much more for you, and his unrevealed plan for you is way better than any plan that you could come up with. All right, encouragement number two. This is for those in their post-career season of life. I call it that for a reason. Give yourself away, and he will fill you up. Forget about retirement. I bristle at that word. Um, his plan is way, way better. So um, God had been stirring my heart for missions since my first mission trip in the late 90s. I just didn't know when it would happen. So back to 2011, just a few months after the divorce, my ex-wife's emotional health spiraled, and she took her life. Suddenly, I'm now a full-time dad, but God had just taught me about his faithfulness, so I put next right decision back in place. I had to put that stirring for the next thing aside to focus on my boy. Fast forward several years, and my son had his feet up under him, was in college, and God cranked things up in my heart and made it clear it was time to put consulting behind me and venture into the next chapter he was writing for me. So I put the next right decision approach in place, and I trusted him. And I got to flip, flip the page. So, so I identified three people that had made a transition from ministry or from secular work to ministry and um, set up a meeting with them. And I, my plan was to hear their story, share mine, and get their advice. And their advice was often, uh, was always, you need to meet so-and-so. You need to read this book. You need to go to this um, workshop. Um, so, and so I did that. Uh, I did all the things, and, and the things Ernie suggested regarding, regarding figuring out how I'm wired. Took all kinds of assessments. I didn't think I had any transferable skills, so I was trying to figure that out. And um, so I did all of that just kept letting God open and close and sometimes slam doors the whole time, not knowing where this was going to end. The journey took me to volunteering and working with a number of nonprofits and ministries that have led me to where I am today. Now it's benevolence ministry, local care here at Sojourn, and a variety of mentoring roles. And it still hasn't ended, but I've settled into a season now where I know God is at work. And I'm trying really hard to not say I'm busy, but instead that my life is so full because it really is. It really is. My encouragement to you all in that season or this season is to not waste a lifetime of experience and wisdom God has gifted you with on what we traditionally call retirement. Take it, pour it into the next generation and the vulnerable in some way. Mm. You won't regret a minute of it. Mm. So, Amen. that's it. That's good. That's good, brother. Thank you. Can you pray? I want you to pray. Can you pray? Can I pray? Uh -huh. I'd love to just get Mike to pray for us. We're in those seasons just to stir our hearts. Uh, sometimes it's the biggest step is just a step of courage. To, uh, if, you, if you feel like God might be prompting you, and depending upon what season, um, just to have the courage to, to move forward. Uh, oftentimes, you can have good ideas that never are executed upon. And so we'd love for you just to pray that God would strengthen and guide our hearts in that way. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for bringing us together with intention. Thank you for the plans that you have for our lives, Lord. And we just ask you, Lord, to just stir our hearts and 
reveal to us what uh, the next right step, Lord. Just reveal that and give us the courage and the strength and the wherewithal to make that step, even if it's a hard one. Um, and trust you that you'll piece all those steps together into an amazing plan, an amazing future. And I just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. It's good. Very good. Very good. All right. So we're going to continue our time together. Um, there's a guy in the 5th century we talk about every once in a while. His name is St. Augustine. He wrote a masterpiece called The City of God. And in The City of God, he made a case that Christians were both citizens of the earthly city and of the citizens of the city of God. That we are simultaneously a part of two realities. That your, what words that he would use, your pagan neighbor uh, may only be a part of the earthly city at this moment. So there's still common interest for a follower of Jesus to enter in and support your pagan neighbor to make sure that what is happening here in this earth and this life that we're living, we're promoting and moving things for the better. We've been talking about in the cultural mandate that to be a part of the church is to be a part of that reality. And at the same time, we're also called to be a part of this thing called the city of God, that we're a part of two citizenships, one here and now and the cultural mandate to see this place flourish and in the city of God, that our identity is found in the age to come and we're citizens of heaven, which feeds really naturally into where we've been over the last couple of weeks. The last few weeks, we've been talking about that earthly citizenship. That we're part of this place here now. We're not called to just wait or just do ministry or just try to change careers that are part of a church. No, you're, you're called to cultivate and keep and make this place a bit more beautiful here and now. But friends, this is not our only mandate. We're also citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. And our king invites us not only to make this place beautiful, he also invites us to tell the world of this, tell the people of this world of the beauty of who Jesus is. And so I want to focus on that second piece with us this morning, this word called the Great Commission. I want to consider that with us this morning. And so I got a couple of points for us. The first is this, that Jesus' invitation was for abundant life on this side of heaven. Jesus' invitation was for abundant life on this side of heaven. In John 10, uh, Jesus said, uh, the, the enemy, Satan, came to keep, uh, steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that you would have life and have it abundantly. That invitation is for us now and to come. To understand Jesus and his invitation, we have to understand who he was. We've talked about this before, and we'll talk about it again. He was, yes, a Savior who forgives our sins. Yes, he's a Lord who rules over all things. But he was also a rabbi. He was a teacher. And at the heart of discipleship is this idea of being formed into his image. See, to make disciples is to see Jesus formed in people. So quick history lesson around discipleship. From a Messianic Jewish post, we read the heart of discipleship, which is this. The Hebrew word for disciple is Talmud. Talmud means student. A Talmud was a student of one of the sages. A Talmud's job was to learn everything that his master had to teach. The disciples of the first century Judaism learned everything from their teacher, and they learned to be just like their teacher. They learned the stories that the teacher told. They learned the lessons that their teacher taught. They learned to eat the foods that their teacher ate, the way their teacher ate them. 
They learn to keep the Sabbath the way their teacher kept Sabbath and to give charity the way their teacher gave charity. They learn to pray the way their teacher prayed and to fast the way their teacher fasted. They learned how to keep God's commands the way their teacher kept them. The disciples followed their teacher everywhere he went. And the teacher taught his disciples everything he could. So this was the context that Jesus came into and inviting people to follow him. So to be a disciple of Jesus as a Christian means that we take on the practices, yes, of our Savior, yes, of our Lord, and yes, of our rabbi, where we choose to be with him, become like him, and do what he did. So he didn't just give us a ticket to go to heaven. And that's oftentimes where we can go mentally, but he invites us into transformation here and now. Seeing all the good that we have gleaned with evangelism, it appears that we have emphasized something and downplayed something else. The emphasis has focused on eternity, where you will go when you die. Sometimes that can be the primary, maybe the only thing that's talked about when we talk about Jesus. That's a fair, important question. But what has been lost is that Jesus offers us something this side of heaven, The abundant life that Jesus offers isn't just for then, it's also for now. So Jesus' invitation was for abundant life on this side of heaven, which leads to, if we understand that, it leads to what he's inviting us into in the Great Commission. So the second point is this. The Great Commission is an invitation for the church to invite people into the life of Jesus on this side of heaven. So Jesus lives. He dies and we talked about just a few weeks ago, he's put into a tomb. We see a seal put. We see Roman soldiers there. But he conquered. He stepped out of that grave. He moved that stone. He's risen indeed, and he took the keys of death and Hades. He is victorious over everything seen and unseen, everything visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. He is king and ruler over all. And with this in mind, We read some of his last words in Matthew chapter 28, which says this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Fathers, we consider a a familiar text. Spirit, we ask you just breathe upon our hearts afresh. Allow us to see things maybe we haven't seen. Open the eyes of our hearts to see the risen Jesus and his invitation to follow him and to make disciples. Move in our hearts, God. Lord, our cynical, calloused hearts, Lord, including my own, would you breathe afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's break this down. He says, go. As you go would be another way to translate that. Or in your going, it's an active, it's a verb. There's as you're going, in your going. There's an active as you're moving through life, not just on Sunday, but in your life as you go. So you have to keep that in mind. He says, go, make disciples. 
allowing Jesus to become your rabbi. The invitation is to take on this idea of Jesus as your rabbi and submit to him as the one who will reteach and reform how you live your life. You grew up with a family that was broken. You learned all kinds of habits along the way. You've learned certain things as being an American if you grew up in America. We've learned all kinds of things, and in our discipleship, we are now being reformed by Jesus. It's impactful as we look to what that means for us. And so we're allowing him to reform us and how we have been deformed by sin and shame and Satan and this world. And we're invited. Uh, we invite people to experience this redemption in making disciples. And friends, in our backyard, the harvest is plentiful when it comes to this invitation. So it says, go make disciples of all nations. So we care both about local things and global things. We talked last week about uh, a country in Africa. We, we often will talk about global realities and we care about what's happening in our own backyard, local and global, all nations. And this is baptizing them. So this is an outward sign of an inward transformation that's happening in our lives. It's not salvific, but it is the fruit of following Jesus. We choose to be baptized. Man, if you're a follower of Jesus, you haven't been baptized. Let's talk. I'd love to make that a reality for you. And then he says, teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. What is implied is that in this life, we will forevermore be a student of our teacher who is our rabbi. Dallas Willard says this, a disciple is a learner, a student, an apprentice, a practitioner. Disciples of Jesus are people who do not just profess certain views as their own, but apply their growing understanding of life and the kingdom of the heavens to every aspect of their life. Then he ends and he says, but I'm, I'm with you to the very end of this age. So again, the Great Commission is an invitation for the church to invite people into the life of Jesus on this side of heaven. So I have a correction for us and then I have a question. The correction is this. Along the way, we've gotten caught up with Jesus' invitation as forgiveness only. So, for example, and what I do in my job, I, I hear this question often throughout the years of doing this. Uh, talk to many people about this, this, this question about around once saved, always saved. Is this a thing or not? What are your, what's your view? I'm curious what's, what, what it is. And the question behind the question is this. Did I make the cut? Am I, am I making the cut to get, to get there? Am I making the cut. My point isn't to answer that question today. My point is that to say that this is the primary question removes the very essence of discipleship. If the point is, how can I make sure I make the cut then? It's removing the fact that Jesus invites you into transformation now. It's not just about getting to heaven then. It's about the opportunity for heaven to be invaded into your heart and life today through submitting to Jesus as your Savior, yes, your Lord, yes, and your Rabbi, we're asking the wrong question if that's our question. But we've kind of, it's been baked into Christian culture that this, if we can just get to heaven, but man, we're invited into something on this side of heaven. See, once you've been forgiven, you still have to live. It's not just about being forgiven and then just waiting until kingdom come. See, Jesus is about the redemption of our actual life and our actual sin here and now. He's inviting us to be delivered from sin habits of our life today. 
See, the leading assumption in the American church is that you can be a Christian and not be a disciple. And that has placed tremendous confusion separating discipleship and being a Christian. I can be a Christian and not be a disciple. I can just have Jesus and his forgiveness and not allow his lordship to come and rule over my life today. See, Jesus' invitation isn't just for eternity then, though it is, but it's also for eternity now. See, part of discipleship is to help people see the life of Jesus here. Not about just making a decision to get to heaven. Instead, and also, first about how he can transform our lives here. Dallas Willard goes on to say, The greatest issue facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens in every corner of human existence. So the, the, the need in the world is for the church to become the church. The need in the world is for discipleship to be recalibrated within the church and that on this side of eternity, we would actually take Jesus' invitation seriously when it comes to discipleship. Jesus' call to rule through disciple-making is what we are invited into as the people of God. We're invited to rule through the cultural mandate. We're invited to rule through humbly inviting people into discipleship, to invite people into a place of rest for our souls. Because when you think about discipleship, it's very easy to be like, I don't want to put that pressure on somebody else. Let them make their own choice. And while we're seeing it erode and we're seeing it become a dead end, we, don't, we feel uncomfortable with talking to people about Jesus. But if you think about it like this, like people yearn for peace. People yearn for their minds to be freed from shame and pain of the past. People yearn to be freed from their own failures. People yearn to find an identity that they can't find in just a self-expression. And we have the opportunity to humbly invite people into participating in the healing of what Jesus offers to us. So the correction is to understand that what Jesus invites us into isn't just forgiveness and wait for heaven. It's forgiveness and for allow his lordship to come here and now. So now the question so we're invited by Jesus to rule through humble disciple-making. That causes us to ask a question. Am I, are we, following Jesus? Is my life pointing to following Jesus? In your hobbies, in your habits, in your work, in your free time, when no one is looking are we a people who want to follow Jesus? See, making disciples wasn't ever designed to be bifurcated, separated. Where you have your discipleship, and you have, I read the Bible in the morning. I pray in the morning. And then live your life as if you don't know Jesus and you never spent time with him in the morning. The design was always for discipleship to be a part of our life. The very essence of who we are. That's the glory of it. As you go in your life, as you follow Jesus, we're invited to follow him, invite others to experience the gift that we have. 
So we have to ask the question, if we're going to talk about disciple-making and ruling through humble disciple-making, the question before that is, am I following Jesus? Because there's no point in talking about making disciples if that's not true of who I am and who we are. See, when he is secondary, when he's extra, that gets little press in our life, then it makes sense that we wouldn't spread what isn't actively a part of who we are. See, people share, we know this, we share about what we care about. What is meaningful to us, what's front of mind to us, is something that we talk about. So you have friends, I like golf. So you have friends that like golf, you'll just see them every once in a while, just... It's like, you don't, you don't have to talk to them. They're just weird in the corner, just working on their swing, right? Like, you do, maybe you act and do certain things that show that you care about certain things. Maybe you have friends that love paint colors, and somehow every conversation goes there. Sometimes, like, I don't know how we're here, but yeah, you're right. That is a, that is a off-white whatever. I don't even, I don't have anything on my mind. Some of you have friends who love fishing or, I mean, love their pets, or love gardening, or homeschool life. And you'll experience it if you're around them. You're around them long enough, every conversation somehow gets back to homeschool. It's like, I, my kids are in public school, and I love public school. Like, I, I don't, you don't need to sell me. I'm good with it. But every conversation goes there. Why? Because you, you talk about what you care about. We naturally talk about the very things that we care about. So in the same way, and when Jesus is secondary, when he's extra, when he's just kind of the leftovers, then it would make sense that we don't talk about him. In the same way, that's how it plays out for us. So part of our lack of disciple-making is directly connected to a mixture of two things, either a lack of prioritizing him in our life or learning that we have to succumb to culture and separate faith from our life, private and public. But that question, am I following Jesus is a good question for us to ask. It's a caring question for us to ask. It's a question of kindness that we can reset upon in reflection. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who, it, who is in heaven. See, it's in us following Jesus that guide people to see that there's an alternative way to live life. In us following Jesus, we're able to make disciples. And if we live a bifurcated life where our faith isn't leading to our discipleship, then it would make sense that nobody would be curious about our lives. But we are all being formed. And Jesus is inviting us to be formed by him. And how we live and how we prioritize and how we care and how we seek to not be ruthless in our work and how to be generous and how to be humble. And it was the early church that was known as a people who followed the way. The, the world knew that the church was different, and they followed a different way than they did. So the Great Commission is an invitation for the church to invite people into the life of Jesus on this side of heaven. They were invited to rule through humble disciple-making, which leads to the third and primary, our final thought, which is this. You have been given two primary callings, the cultural mandate 
and the Great Commission. So in your life, you have two primary callings in, in regards to what you're called to do. Your first call is to work hard and do a really good job at what you do. So if you're in IT, your job is to make that computer system sing. You want that thing to buzz and work super well to the best of its ability. And secondly, you're invited to see and experience how discipleship and how following Jesus is designed to shape you and invite others into it. We're invited to live in such a way that you are distinct, not just in IT, but in your life and meaning and purpose and joy and humility and uh, ownership when you make a mistake. John Mark Comer says that the, the way of Jesus should permeate and influence and shape every facet of your life. So we're invited to submit to the mandate, the cultural mandate, to make this world beautiful. And we're also called to the great commission to invite people to experience the beauty of Jesus in their lives as we are seeking to do the same. Tim Keller says this, he says, Jesus followers who live missionally no longer see the church service as primarily connecting people with those outside the community. Connecting with those outside happens within the culture by insiders that culture who ex- to that culture who express the gospel through how they live. In other words, that the, the design going forward, and, and it's been this way for a while now, isn't just to, if I can just get somebody to go into church, and they can talk to the, they can listen to the guy that's, or the person that's on stage. Now, the design is for us to be empowered to know that we're invited in our lives to show people Jesus in our lives and the connections we have in our spaces. So we are therefore seeking to learn how to live in this world with unique rhythms and distinct ways of life. So a great question to ask is, if Jesus were me, in my city, with my family, in my job and education, making my salary, how would he live? You ever thought about that before? This is a way that we can approach discipleship. If you were me in my city, in my context, in my space, how would he invite me to live? So we rule through using our gifts to cultivate and keep, and we rule through allowing Jesus to disciple us and humbly inviting other people. Not to see how great we are, because we're not, but to see how great Jesus is. I found that the ministry and movement called Business's Mission I don't know if you're familiar with it. Some of our cross-cultural workers use this concept. Business as mission is helpful in combining these two realities of the cultural mandate and the Great Commission. So I want to end considering a few of these thoughts. Business as mission is demonstrating, demonstrating what the kingdom of God is like in the context of business. So strategizing in the advancement of the gospel on the global frontier. And so it's designed to be used in global missions, to allow business to be an opportunity to spread the gospel. But I find that we can also learn on this side of the pond what it looks like to engage some of these things. It has a strategic place, yes, in global missions, but I think we can learn from it in our own lives. Business's mission helps us connect dots between the cultural mandate and the Great Commission. It invites us to excel in IT, if you're in IT. But it also invites us to live distinct and intentional as followers of Jesus. 
So we don't just need to be a missionary or cross-cultural worker to begin to think about these things. We have the opportunity, if we're following Jesus, if we're called here, to also consider what it looks like to be intentional here. Living in relationship where we show Jesus, where we pray for our coworkers, where we choose to be distinct in this world. Will Sorrell, who is a researcher and a, a connects faith and work and mission, he's a part of uh, business's mission, he said this, it's a long paragraph, so buckle up. It is undoubtedly significant that the Great Commission follows the cultural mandate. Without the fall, there's no need for evangelism. After all, missions exist because worship doesn't. There is an urgency to the Great Commission that is for all believers across all time and requires an all-in attitude. The gospel must reach the nations and it must reach them swiftly. Nevertheless, the cultural mandate cannot fade from our missional vision. The cultural mandate did not end in Genesis and the Great Commission did not begin in Matthew. The movement of the canon is one from creation to new creation and the king's kingdom is one of holistic healing. The restoration of the nations involves worship around the throne one day as well as worship in our work and witness this day. See, friends, we're in a story from creation to recreation. And we've been given a calling from our king that is directly connected to his plan in this world. And part of the healing of this world is through doing good work. And part of healing in this world is showing people and sharing people with people how to follow Jesus. So we're invited to engage this world in that way in a way of seeing this place made more beautiful and to care for people enough to show our lives how Jesus has met and changed us and invite people into that. We're invited as ones being formed by Jesus to see the dignity of our work and see, man, are there ways and people that Jesus has put in our lives to love on and care for even through our work? See, the average American adult spends 2,650 hours, working hours every year. 2,650 working hours. So it makes sense that maybe Jesus would want to merge our two realities of the cultural mandate and the Great Commission together. So in your job, you are showing how Jesus has affected your life, how he is reforming your life and relationships as you share about your passions and cares and what God is doing in your life. And we're in time invited to humbly show people Jesus. See, we rule by inviting people into another way, a way of Jesus. Yes, in forgiveness. And yes, as we live in a new way of life. So I have two questions for you as we close. The first is, again, are you following Jesus? Discipleship begins here. You can't disciple without being discipled. I mean, I felt it this morning. I'm, I'm looking through this stuff. I wake up early on Sundays and processing, kind of praying through some of this. And I just, just kind of felt this in my heart, that invitation, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I was like, man, transparently, I, I feel like social media, not like in an immoral way, but social media is just kind of, I've just been loving it lately. Just those reels get you. They get you. You know. And I've just found, I've just not cared I've just found that my time is just kind of gone, and I feel it in my heart. I just feel like the, ah, oh, and I, just that subtle, gentle invitation of Jesus, follow me, follow me. In 2023, 
follow me. And I just feel that a reset. Like I wrote in my journal this week, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pull away from social media this next week because I just feel it. And it just affects other, other aspects of life. And so I feel it. Invitation to follow Jesus. And so are we choosing to follow Jesus? And the second question is, who's someone you might be praying for? Again, like intersecting our faith in our life. Is there a neighbor? Is there a coworker? We've just built, you just forged a relationship with. It's been natural and you, you feel like, man, maybe there could be an opportunity where I could just share a little bit more just about my journey. And you don't have to be like, hey, I just wanted to take a few minutes and share my 